Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Brothers and sisters. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. There we go. Shalom. Hi, Jackie. Hi, Carol. Hi, Braca. There you go. Hi, Lynn. Hi. Good to see you. Let's see if we can get other people in here. Well, we're coming along wonderfully here. The crowd is beginning to expand. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom, will say. How are you, my friend? Shabbat shalom. Hi, Kimberly. Shabbat shalom, Dr. P. Just had some really nice wild honey and locusts. Shabbat shalom. Oh, there you go, Mark. Jesse will be happy to know that you're eating wild honey and locusts. Shabbat shalom. Fantastic. Shabbat shalom, Dr. Shabbat shalom. Good to hear from you. How are you? Yeah, so good to talk to you. I would uh, like to talk to you some other day because I have so many good news to share with you. Oh, do you really? Well, that's outstanding. Well, you can yeah. contact me at stephen at sefford.net. If you want, you write me by email or you can... Uh, even reach me, uh, well, you can reach me all kinds of places, but Stephen at Sefford.net is a great start. Okay, I want to write you. Thank okay. you, brother. Shabbat shalom, Dr. Pigeon. Shabbat shalom. Hi, James, Maria, Isabel. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom, Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Good. Thank Shabbat you for your letter. Shalom. I really appreciate your letter. It was beautiful. Oh, Good morning. Shalom. We're, we're glad you got it. Oh, yeah. It, it gets here the hard way, you know. We had to send it up okay. by a uh, husky dog snail team, mail. but other than that, we got it. Yeah, we had good snail, <laughs> snail mail. Did it come by dog sled? Yeah, by dog sled. Yeah, they, you know, hushy muskies, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. From the Iditarod, right? Yeah, the Iditarod. That's well, the Iditarod's about ready to start, you know. Oh, is it okay? Yeah, you know, we get to Iditarod season when it hits ten below, which it's going to tonight. We're going to hit ten below tonight. So, oh my That's, gosh. That's Iditarod traffic. And uh, right now it's fantastic, really, because we've had so much fresh snow in the month of February that nice. sometimes the dogs have it rough if there's not enough snow. But not this time. There's going to be plenty of snow, lots of virgin trail to break. You know, they mush 600 miles, right? Yeah, yeah. How many days? Uh, it takes about the, the high-speed runners get there in about eight days. That's that's a pretty good track. You got to be rugged for that. Oh, I'm telling you, I don't have it in me to do it. No possible way. I mean, you know, the uh, one of the one of the Iditarod races was, was uh, won by one of my heroes. Apples, raisins, cinnamon. Okay, honey. Which was, uh, which was, um, Libby Riddles was her name, and then I just have such fantastic admiration for this woman. Because she was the first woman to win the Iditarod. And oh. uh, she did it when they got to the coast, to the Bering Sea. They were in a blizzard. And so there was kind of a tacit understanding. What's that? Um, oh, it's a thousand miles. Yeah. The, uh, oh, there was an understanding that, okay, we're all going to hunker down tonight and get some rest and wait for the blizzard to blow over. Well, she waited for everybody to go to sleep, and then she harnessed up her dogs and cut straight out over the ice on the Bering Sea in a 45-degree angle. Oh, my gosh. 
And I mean, you know, I mean, the guts of, I mean, you know, you're out on frozen ice on the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. In the middle of the night, there's nothing out there. All she had was a little, the light on the top of her head that she was using to mush the dogs. And she's mushing over all these, you know, erupted icebergs and everything else over the top of the ice. Anyway, by the time they recognized she was gone, it took them almost three hours to realize that she was gone. They never caught her. <laughs> so she ended up in Nome and, and, I mean, it was 45 below zero crossing over the Bering Sea. So it was quite, quite the, the feat. And then she went on from there to do a solo ascent on uh, what we call Denali. Now, back then it was called Mount McKinley. Right. But uh, she did a solo ascent on Denali, which was, that was, uh, you know, that's 20,320 feet of a mountain that regularly takes, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 climbers a year die on that mountain oh my and she did a solo ascent there you go i'll just i'll just go up there and see what's going on catch a view you know so <laughs> quite quite an amazing woman this libby riddles and then of course since then there have been several women that have won the iditarod but uh, she was the first one to really accomplish it uh in, in terms of the first woman to win and you know so it's it still goes on the iditarod still goes on and in fact yeah. the race trail is not far from my house and it runs out to uh where we go fishing over the susitna and uh and then then it goes up through a place called squentna and then over rainy pass into what we affectionately refer to as the fourth world the fourth world and the fourth world is that stuff that's on the other side of the alaskan range which (laughs) uh, you know for those of you who know alaska you know how rough it is yeah so anyway So welcome, everybody, this morning to our Shabbat Fellowship. I want to thank you all for being here today. And uh, today we have a very interesting Torah portion. And I want to talk a little bit about, first of all, I want to talk a little bit about what we need to do here at the Sabbath Fellowship, because we've been getting a little out of control. And we need to kind of rein it in a little bit, because we have to have some order. And, you know, I've been teaching a little bit on... uh, Radio Free Alaska about regular markets and regular markets are markets that are not bureaucratic or that are overloaded with regulations like OSHA and so forth, but markets that are protected from things that shouldn't be in place in the market. Like for instance, you cannot have a free market if there's pirates regularly raiding the outside of the the market or if you have thieves inside the market and so on and so forth, it's not a market. You have to be able to protect to some degree the order of what's happening. And that's what we need to do here at the Sabbath fellowship. And so we need to take, take the care to take the time to get through the Torah teaching before we begin kibitzing at the end, because a lot of people are getting very, very frustrated that we haven't been able to do uh, a good teaching. And so that becomes a bit of an issue. So with that being said, let's hold your questions until the end of the fellowship, if you would. Hold your questions until the end of the fellowship. And then let's begin with questions, right? So a question is typically an interrogatory statement that seeks an answer. It's not an answer seeking a question, but rather a question seeking an answer, okay? All right. So with that being said, we're just about we've just about gathered 
most of our family here. And I have to tell you that, um, yeah, you see, I can tell by looking at our list here, we have lost, uh, there's at least a dozen people who are not here today that are regularly here. So you can see that sometimes disorder has its cost. It affects people because they're looking for uh, shalom on Sabbath. And, you know, shalom is a big part of Sabbath, right? Because we are to rest and lift up Yah. Not ourselves, really, but Yah. Because the truth be told, it ain't about us. It never has been about us, right? By him, through him, for him. And this has been all the nature of creation. And we're unique in that Yah created us to be his children, to be a family, um, to be the, the very body of Mashiach, that we would be one with him in fellowship through eternity. And so because of that, we need to practice our kingdom skills. And uh, our kingdom skills are going to be one of where on earth, sometimes, you know, you know, have you ever heard the story that, that uh, the statement that guests are like fish after three days, they start to stink, you know, and it's, uh, you know, <laughs> you have, you know, you have a very interesting quandary that most people can't get along with other people for longer than about three days. But we're going to have to get along with each other in the kingdom forever. So it's time to learn those kingdom skills here, because the kingdom is what it's all about. Not about us, but about the kingdom. Now, I want to talk a couple things with the Torah portion today. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament Torah portion, because it has a lot of technical aspects to the building of the tabernacle. I am going to summarize it by saying that we're, we're going to take a look at the Teruma aspect of it. But when you're talking about the tabernacle, the tabernacle was built in a specific way. And Yah told Moshe to build it like this. And the tabernacle had functionality that is uh, different than you might imagine. When And there's been a number of researchers. In fact, I had a friend that wrote me. Oh, and by the way, before we get started, and, and I will, uh, I am going to pray for us before we get started too. Um, you know, Dr. Michael Heiser passed away this last week and, uh, Michael Heiser was a, um, very informative, uh, person. I only met him on a couple of occasions, but he was very informative as to scripture and, and he had a very stalwart approach to, uh, the credibility within scripture and his work and his videos are still worth watching in every respect, any of his old stuff is still worth watching. So, uh, you know, uh, rest in peace, Michael Heiser. Uh, sorry to see you go so young. He was a young man, much younger than me. And uh, anyway, so we've lost Michael Heiser. That's kind of a big deal. Um, the, uh, uh, so I wanted to mention that. And then the other thing is, we're going to talk here a little bit about the, the Teruma. We're going to talk about the tabernacle. And the difference between the tabernacle and the temple, because there was something happened, something that happened that uh, reduced us from the functionality of the tabernacle, because the tabernacle was built in such a way, and we think it may have been built in the round, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that uh, John sent me over some 
a literature on a round church that was found in, I believe it's Bulgaria and Sofia, that was found in a ruin there that's ancient, ancient, ancient. And uh, we know that there's a number of churches really around the world that are round churches. And the round church was, they were built in the round for a reason. In fact, when I went to uh, Corinth in Greece, our uh, guide was, uh, you know, could read the, uh, the ancient coin of Greek. And when we were in the old ruins, there's two sections to Corinth. There's the old Greek section, and then there's the Roman section. And the Roman section, of course, has, you know, the Romans were so funny because they had sculptures that were headless. And so they had a sculpture of a woman and a sculpture of a man, and they were both headless. And then the next guy that came into power, they just put his head on top of that sculpture. You know, oh, it's, this is so-and-so. You know, they put his head up there or her head up there, depending on who it was. And then all their columns, right? But the Greeks were a bit different in terms of how they lived. They had the Temple of Apollo up on the hill, which was a real pagan place. I mean, to put it mildly. I mean, here you have this temple on the hill that was painted red to draw in the sailors. They were slaughtering animals up there and animal sacrifice on a daily basis. And so you can imagine the smell, right, from a slaughterhouse. And this is where all the temple prostitutes worked. So, I mean, what a place, you know. But down at the foot of the hill was what they believed is the synagogue because they found a plaque buried in the dirt that had Hebrew letters on it. And uh, so, but the synagogue in Corinth is the only building that is built in an oval. It's built in an oval. And if you ever go to Kafernachum or Capernaum, that's what they call it, but Kafernachum, if you go to that ancient village, they try to tell you that, oh, here's St. Peter's house, which is absolutely Catholic nonsense. It was most likely the synagogue, the ancient synagogue of Kafernachum, which again was a round building. And so we see that the practice uh, throughout the ages has been in the round, in the round. And we know that when we talk about the sons of Zarak, they're identified in the book of Kings as the sons of Mahol. But Mahol is not a person. Mahol means from round dancing. And so you see that when we talk about the sons of Mahol, who were uh, who were the sons of Zerach, Darda and Kalkol and Haman and Etanim and Zimri, that uh, they were the sons of round dancing. They were known as the sons of round dancing. And when you follow the tribes, the ethnic tribes, which I believe are tribes of Israel in the United States, you see the Shakari and so on, the Navajo and so forth. When they get together to worship, they dance in the round saying, Haya, 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 right? And uh, so it, it's very interesting stuff in that respect. So there, some of the scholars, friends of mine, think that the tabernacle was in fact in the round. There's nothing in the reading here that demonstrates it's square. Uh, and in fact, there's reason to believe that it could be round. But one thing is a certainty that the way it was made, it was made that you had a kind of wooden walls and the ceiling was a layer of furs. 
And that layer of furs, when they rubbed against each other, would allow for and cause static electricity to, to gain, gain function, if you will. And that static electricity, when applied to the Ark of the Covenant, which was completely covered in gold, which is a massive electric conductor, that this electricity would gather inside the Ark of the Covenant. And I think we don't see this written in the text, but we do know that the priesthood was not allowed inside the, inside the proximity of the, of the Ark of the Covenant if they were wearing anything other than linen. If they wore any wool, you know, wool gives off a spark of static when you wear it. And even if you mix the wool with the linen, you could still get a spark. So the priests were required to wear only linen when they approached the Ark of the Covenant. And part of that reason, I believe, was the fact that that Ark, with those two caravan facing each other, was capable of generating around 100,000 watts. And so it could it could generate a great deal of electricity. And if you came into the and you came into the its proximity without proper preparation, you'd be dead. And there is testimony that many people did in fact die. The two sons of Aharon, improperly dressed, entered and approached the tabernacle and were killed immediately. So, but what you see in today's Torah portion is that we go from this proper and elaborate instruction of Yah, you shall build the tabernacle like this. These kinds of furs, these kinds of walls, this menorah, this table, this altar, you know, this Ark of the Covenant, you shall build it like this. And by the time we get to David, we have something entirely different going on. The the ark has been objectified. And the ark has been objectified and is used as a thing of power. And David begins to use the ark as a thing of power. But Yah talks to David and he says, you know, one of the things that's going to take place that takes place as a result of us coming out of the wilderness and going into the promised land is that I'm going to establish my name forever over this place. But it is a conditional promise. I will establish my name forever over this place as long as you guard my commandments and my way. Now, this is the promise that's given in today's Torah portion to Solomon. It's very clear. And so as a, as a result of that, the point of, that of the temple is not to create the tabernacle because the tabernacle that was used in the wilderness is going to lose its properties when it is when the ark of the covenant is brought into a building it's going to lose that capability of that high voltage uh, interchange between the heavens and the earth that was found in the Ark of the Covenant, because the Ark is going to be protected by a wooden ceiling. Now, this was fine. This is what Yah intended, but he intended it for a time that his name would be placed over the house of Israel. 
and that there would be a place where his name was resident. This became extremely important because Yah was telling the world, these are my people and this is my place. And this was the point of the temple. Now, just to get further into this so that we have a clear idea of what happened, you can, it's very important to understand that when Solomon's temple was destroyed, the stuff that followed after that was man's attempt to recreate Yah's promise. But Yah's promise was not recreated in Jerusalem. Now, there was something that was recreated in Jerusalem, and this would be the place that Mashiach would die. So there's very little question that the work of the Maccabees had to be done, that the reconstruction of a second temple had to be done, because the Torah and its premises had to be demonstrated to the people of the promised land who were still resident there, almost none of which were the house of Yasharel. Almost none of which. I mean, it was a very, very small remnant that remained in the promised land following the destruction of the first temple. Very few remained. And in fact, our research shows that when Jeremiah left, uh, you know, the Ark of the Covenant was taken and buried somewhere. This is reported in uh, the second book of Maccabees. And it's also reported elsewhere that the Ark of the Covenant was not taken by Nebuchadnezzar. It was missing by the time Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem. And he also took the harp of David. And he also took the stone of scone, Jacob's pillow. And this is the book of Tephi that reports these things, that he took these things. And the understanding that's given to us in Jeremiah, and I'll give you the scriptural citations on this when I actually teach on this, which maybe we might even do this week. When Jerusalem would be torn down and be replanted in the wilderness, and this, in fact, happened. It was replanted in the wilderness. It was replanted in Ireland at a place they called Tara, after the Torah. And they replanted Jerusalem, and they practiced the Torah to the extent that they could. But when they lost the Shabbat, which they did because Rome got to them and took their Shabbat, when they lost the Shabbat, they also lost their Jerusalem. And they also lost their king on the throne of David. And it transferred to another people who would keep the Shabbat for some period of time. And those people replanted a new Jerusalem to the extent they could. And they fought to retain the Shabbat. And they too were overcome by Rome. And the Shabbat was taken away. And their kingdom was taken away. And since that has happened, there was an attempt for pilgrims to try to restore some kind of faith, but they didn't understand that they needed to restore the Shabbat. And as a consequence, the kingdom was never established in the new world. It was transient. And the kingdom we had 
that was brought here. When you go back and you look at the colonies that were founded on the eastern coast of the United States, excluding Rhode Island now, but the other 12 colonies were all theocracies. They were not democracies. They were all theocracies. All 12 of them required a confession of faith, of the Protestant faith in particular, or you could not hold office at all. This was completely overthrown by the deists who created the federal system. Now, initially they thought, well, we'll create a federalist system that will be neutral and abide in the different doctrines between the 12 colonies, however slight they may be, and they were quite slight. But we all know that slightness in Protestant doctrine is not enough to stop a war. And in their attempt to do that, the concept was to have a small central state governing 12 theocracies. But that small central state became a cancer. And by the time we get to the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln, the federal state completely subsumes all of the other colonies and the other states and all of the aspects of a theocracy completely disappear in favor of the new God, democracy. And that new God, democracy, has given us a completely godless, atheist state that is beyond description. It's beyond anybody's words, beyond anybody's imagination, because the nation state has fallen. And so we see this is the promise that was given to Solomon. I will place my name there for as long as you keep my commands. But Jeremiah 3 says, look, I divorced the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom is even worse. Look how they play the harlot with other gods. So these things became really kind of dispositive in terms of what happened with the tabernacle versus the temple. And when Solomon's temple was destroyed, the second temple, the attempt to rebuild the second temple, which we read in the book of Nehemiah and in the book of Ezra, it doesn't describe the construction or the completion of the temple. It describes the completion of the wall around Jerusalem, but not the temple. The temple, it, its completion is described only in 3 Ezra chapter 8. And in 3 Ezra chapter 8, we actually get the date of the completion of the second temple, which was about 417 BC. But this second temple did not have long to live and did not prosper. Instead, Alexander the Great came in and took the entire area. And when he took the entire area, he began to Hellenize this neighborhood. He began to impose the Greek language. Now, Alexander the Great was a very uh, temporary king. He went out and he conquered the major empires in the Middle East, namely the empire that was existing at that time, which was the Medo-Persian Empire. 
and the Medo-Persian Empire had conquered the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire had conquered the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire had conquered the Egyptian Empire. So all of this flowed into its process. But Alexander the Great died in Afghanistan. And when he was killed in Afghanistan in battle, his kingdom immediately split up into four kingdoms, the largest of which was called the Seleucid Kingdom. And the Seleucid Kingdom was ruled out of a town called Antioch. And its kings were called Antiochus, named after the city. And they would also glorify themselves in many different ways. One of the kings was called Antiochus Philadelphus. And he, called, he literally declared himself God. And as did Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the king who would lose the Holy Land to the Maccabees. But the temple fell into nothing. The second temple had nothing happening in it. There's no description. In fact, this is why you see the 66-book Bible end with Malachi. Because once the 66-book Bible ends, you have no description of what happens from that period when the, when the second temple or the first temple is destroyed all the way until the time of Mashiach. There's nothing. Why is there nothing? Because there was no practice. There was no practice inside that second temple of any significance. The only thing we see begin to emerge at all is when we get to the Maccabees. And when we get to the Maccabees, they claim to have found the second temple. They had to clean it out. They had to change the altar. They had to do these other things. They found the naphtha that was continuously burning. And they claim this was the second temple. Was it? Who knows? For all we know, they cleaned out a storeroom that they thought was the second temple. But nonetheless, they claimed it was the second temple. And they began to resurrect the doctrines and the tenets of the kingdom of Judea. Yahud is what it's called in scripture, Yahud. But they did not succeed. Number one, I don't believe that Yah placed his name on that second temple at all. But they practiced the traditions of the temple as they understood them. And it wasn't long, however, before their traditions overwhelmed the Torah. So they looked at the Torah and said, let's do the Torah. And then pretty soon it's, well, let's don't do the Torah. Let's do the rabbinical opinion about the Torah. Oh, okay. And the rabbinical opinion began to be written down. And to the point when you get to Hillel the Elder and Samai, teaching that there is no Torah anymore. It's not the era of the Torah, but rather the era of the Talmud. The era of the Talmud. And the Talmud was developed, the Yerushalmi Talmud, and the Mishnah, the duplicate law, and the Gemara, the religious opinion. And these became governing documents a hundred years before Mashiach arrived. A hundred years. Yet, they tried to perform the rituals of the temple in accordance with the Torah. And you'll note, when you read the Gospels, that Miriam, 
the mother of Mashiach, performed the Torah rituals exactly when it came to the birth of the child. She was unclean for seven days, presented the, the child at the temple on the eighth day in strict accord with Moshe's Torah. But there was no Ark of the Covenant inside that second temple. The Ark of the Covenant never was inside the second temple. Never. So they could put up the veil. They could have the Holy of Holies. But there was no Ark of the Covenant inside the second temple. Now, what's this tell us? We keep talking about a third temple. You know, you know, a lot of Christian philosophy is predicated upon the third temple. Well, is there going to be a third temple? Has there already been a third temple? I believe that, quite frankly, that Herod the Great went and took a look at the warehouse that the Maccabees were trying to claim was the temple and said, well, this is insufficient. And being the great builder that he was, completely rebuilt an entire temple. In fact, the temple that you see so revered in Jerusalem today was their mock-up model of what Herod had constructed. And the temple at the time of Mashiach was known as Herod's temple. Herod's temple. And he built quite the edifice. Was that the third temple? Well, again, if you go and look carefully at Ezekiel, the end of Ezekiel, you will see that Ezekiel talks about a different cubit. And it's very important to understand the different cubit that's talked about in Ezekiel compared to the cubit that you have discussed in Moshe's discussion here in today's Torah portion. Because the cubit of Ezekiel is one hand's width. You know how you measure a horse? A horse is 20 hands. You know, this is the cubit. The cubit is the hand is the hand width. Ezekiel's cubit is a hand width. When you understand that, the layout. If you use uh, Moshe's cubit or Noah's cubit to understand Ezekiel's temple, you have a temple that would take up about three quarters of the nation of Israel. But if you use the cubit according to the way Ezekiel describes it as a hand width, suddenly the temple becomes more like the size that you see or saw with Herod's temple. So Ezekiel's temple was built. Now, if you understand Ezekiel's temple was built, then you understand that the animal sacrifices he talks about in Ezekiel already took place. In fact, they were in place during the time of Hillel the Elder. They were in place during the time that Mashiach was in Jerusalem. So there should be no expectation that animal sacrifice is going to return in the millennium. The animal sacrifice that's described in Ezekiel's, if you're waiting for Ezekiel's temple to be built, then you also have an expectation there's going to be animal sacrifice. But if you recognize that Ezekiel's temple was already built, then you know that the animal sacrifice will not be here. And it is written many, many times. And in fact, the gospel according to the Hebrews, which is a gospel, a set of gospel remnants, 
that Eusebius kept in his notebook that he did not add to uh, the Gospels for some reason or another, includes the phrase that should you return to animal sacrifice, you invoke the wrath of Yah. Now, theologically, we can understand this very clearly because the sacrifice of Mashiach was the sacrifice intended in Leviticus 17.11. Once accomplished, it was propitiation for the sins of mankind from Adam to the very last person who will live on earth. The sins that you have done, the sins that you will done, will do. It's a complete propitiation. There is no blood of a bull, no blood of a lamb, that is going to propitiate for your sins from here, or atone for your sins, or cover your sins. To think such a thing and to practice such a thing is to invoke the wrath of Yah. You can imagine standing at the white throne judgment in front of Mashiach himself and saying, what's your situation? These other people here are clothed in my white linen. What about you? Are you relying on the blood of that lamb right there instead of my blood? Dr. P. Yes, how, how do you have Yeshua saying, you know, when he went in and you've made my my father's house a marketplace when he said that? Yeah, well, he was there to correct, you know, in, in many places, uh, you'll see that there have been attempts to um resurrect the temple. And this was an attempt as well, and to resurrect the temple in Jerusalem. And to the extent that they had called it his father's house and that they had attempted to make it, I mean, it wasn't, they didn't call it a synagogue and they didn't call it uh, the king's palace. They called it the temple, the Haikel. And so this was how they were holding it out and that's why he came in. I mean, this is not to diminish Mashiach's words at all. But I ask you, Alicia, was the Ark of the Covenant in that temple? No, and I agree with you 100%. <laughs> I'm just wondering why Mashiach said that, you know. Well, he was, remember that when Mashiach gets to the Holy Land, you have a group of people here who are saying, okay. Uh, we're practicing the true faith, namely the scribes and the Pharisees, right? The Sadducees, the Pharisees, we're practicing the true faith. And over and over again, particularly in Matthew 23, you see a continuous correction. Woe to you, Pharisees, you have it wrong, you have it wrong, you have it wrong, you have it wrong, and you have it wrong. And he kept instructing them that they had it wrong and that they needed to correct themselves. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that when the faith was being reborn, I mean, it's like, for instance, imagine that um, you had a Ford motor cars and you had Ford, Ford, Ford motor cars for a period of 500 years. And then the car disappears. And 300 years later, somebody finds the factory and says, I'm going to start rebuilding the cars. And they start rebuilding the cars, and they're just death traps that are blowing up on every occasion. And an engineer 
from Ford shows up and says, okay, guys, you have this completely wrong. You're doing this wrong. You're doing this wrong. You're doing that wrong. If you guys are going to try to rebuild the Ford, then I'm here to tell you, you got to clear up these facts. And what these guys did was the engineer that showed up from Ford and told them, you got to clear this up or the vehicle is going to work. They took him out and killed him because they didn't want to hear the correction. And so, well, this is, so it's not entirely off, Alicia, that this was the house of Yah, but was his name actually there? It was to the extent that these things needed to be accomplished. That is to say, that temple had to be there because the presentation of Mashiach, because of the timing of everything, all of that, all of the fraud, all of the usurpation of authority, all of that, it all had to be there. And if it wasn't there, then all of these things that Mashiach accomplished, and what was the, the chief thing that was being told to the people at that time? That the Mashiach was not in violation of any premise of the Torah. He was not in violation of any premise of the Torah. The Talmud, he was violating all over the place, right? The Talmud says, on the Sabbath, you shall not spit into dirt and make mud. The Talmud says that. And what does Mashiach do on the Sabbath? Spits into the dirt, makes mud, and puts it on the fellow's eyes to heal his blindness. Right? That's what you call spitting in your eye, if you will. He was spitting in the eye of the Talmud saying, this manual, this owner's manual, is completely wrong. It's full of nothing but error. Have you not read, he would say to the scribes and the Pharisees, have you not read? And so this is an extremely important aspect of this side of the temple. So we see in the Torah portion here today, we're going to see several things. We're going to see one the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle and the instructions on the tabernacle. Then we go to the passage in Kings where Solomon is going to build the temple. Now, when you look at this, the building of the temple, you see that, number one, Solomon was a crook, for lack of a better word. He was taking advantage of Hiram in the northern kingdom like you wouldn't believe. Like, we're going to get this temple built, and I'm going to cut the expenses. You know, you've met the guy, right? He hires the contractor to come in and finish his house, and then he's nickel and diamond the contractor the back of the day. Well, you know, you quoted me this price, but your work was insufficient here, and blah, 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 blah. Well, this is the same thing you see going on here. So Hiram goes to Solomon, and Solomon says, look, my people don't know how to do a thing. And it was true. People in Solomon's kingdom knew how to pray. And then you had people from all over the world bringing in things to make Solomon extremely wealthy. But when it came time for the temple, was there anybody that knew anything about it? No, because the people that were the productive class in the kingdom were the northern kingdom people. Why? Because they were of the leadership of Joseph 
and if you recall, Joseph in Egypt was the first capitalist. He capitalized on seven years of grain and exploited that capital to expand the Egyptian empire over the entire known world. And so the, the Northern Kingdom, you know, Tyre, Sidon, wherever those places were, these were ports and there was port traffic going on and there was commerce going on and there was trade going on and they were making money. And Solomon was taxing them to pay for his palace in Jerusalem. So when it came time to build the temple, he goes to Hiram. We don't know how to build a temple. Can you guys do it? Yeah, we can do it. We can log the timbers of Lebanon, which, by the way, those cedars were bigger than the redwoods in California. We can log the timbers of Lebanon, and we can cut out limestone out of the ground, which when you get up you know, around uh, Haifa and up in that area northern Lebanon, those hills are, they call them the white hills of Lebanon, not because they're covered with snow, but because they're lime, they're limestone. You dig down through the topsoil, and then here it is, pure limestone. For, you know, I don't know how deep it goes, 60, 80, 100, 200 feet, I don't know. But in, in fact, in Israel, it's the case. When there's a, there is a, 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 a tunnel complex where David hid from, from Saul. Now, I've been in that tunnel complex. We almost got lost in the tunnel complex. It's so big. I mean, there's barns in there and wine presses in there and, and cisterns in there. And it drops down maybe 100 feet. And it goes from, you know, this cave to that cave to that cave to that cave to that cave. You can get lost in that complex. And it's all dug out, easily dug out, because it's in pure limestone. The whole thing, pure limestone. And so they, had, they were going to carve these stones for the temple from the limestone. Well, all of this is accomplished. By Hiram, and Hiram tells Solomon, I will do all of this for you. I'll cut the timbers, I'll get the limestone, I'll ship it down to Yafo, and then we can haul it up from there to the temple. And after they did that, Solomon's people still didn't know how to build it. He's like, Well, what do we do after you get the stuff here? And Hiram was like, You guys don't know how to do anything. We'll come up and build the temple for you. But I want 22 cities under my control. And so Hiram envisioned the 22 cities of the Northern Kingdom, you know, Shechem, Shiloh, uh, 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 not Nablus, but uh, Akko, of these entire side in these places. And at the end of the deal, Solomon gives him 22 of the smallest villages he could find. So Hiram was pretty ticked off. And not only was he ticked off, but all the people that were following under the tenure of Hiram were also very angry. This is why after Solomon died and his son Rehoboam took over, it went immediately into civil war because of the sharp practices of Solomon concerning the building of the temple. Now, again, you see that in this Torah portion. But when you look at this Torah portion in Kings, you'll also see that there, it's conditional. I will place my name in this temple as long as you guard my commandments. It's a conditional covenant. And sure enough, Solomon fell away. 
his son fell away. And then by the time you get to Manasseh, the most wicked king in Israel's history, it wasn't just falling away. It was complete in-your-face rebellion. He had erected a five-headed god in the middle of Jerusalem, which was a demon. And they had put up Astarte poles and Ashtaroth poles. They had high altars built to Baal. They were doing, in fact, the record says Manasseh passed his children through the fire. Manasseh passed his children through the fire to Molech. Now, you know, one of the things I've tried, kind of taught on that issue of Molech many times, but not effectively. But when you look at the forest for the trees on that passage, Molech is just another name for angel, but it's a particular kind of angel, a fallen angel. And so the instruction is do not give your children to the fallen angels. I mean, that's kind of pretty clear, right? Do not give your children to the fallen angels, which means what? You know, there's a Torah provision that we looked at last week, the most difficult section of the Torah, by the way. But we looked at that section last week that a man was not supposed to sell his daughter, you know, indiscriminately, right? Well, if, but the Torah did allow for the father to sell his daughter. But the Torah was pretty clear. Do not pass your children over to Molech. So they were saying, yeah, you can sell your daughter into a marriage, but do not sell your daughter. Do not pass your daughter over to one of those fallen ones. Do not engage in that crossbreeding, if you will. And I think this is what the instruction was, because where do you find that do not pass your daughter over to Molech? It's in Leviticus 18. You know, no incest, no adultery, no sodomy no bestiality, and don't pass your kids over to Molech. How's that a sexual sin? Okay, so today, when you look at the Torah portion today, we're talking about the Teruma. Now, this passage is called the Teruma, okay? Now, again, this is a very important point, and we, we are going to talk about this, and I want to talk about this, this particular passage in respect of what is taught in the Christian church. So when you're in the Christian church, you're told repeatedly in the modern Christian church that all that Torah stuff got nailed to the cross. Am I right? Do what thou wilt, because we're not under the law. The law is legalism. That business of keeping the Sabbath, that's legalism. That's somebody trying to put you under the law, trying to put you under the yoke of the law. And the law got nailed to the cross. That's what Paul told us in Second uh, Colossians 2. The law got nailed to the cross. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. It's all gone. Do what thou wilt. Once you've given your altar call, You've got fire insurance. You're guaranteed to be in heaven. You should know that your salvation is certain, and there's nothing that's ever going to disturb it. Once saved, always saved. Go out there and commit the crimes you want to commit. Because one thing about it, you might get arrested here on earth, but you've got salvation in heaven. But there's one law that didn't get nailed to the cross. 
Which law is that? Give me your money. Tithing. Give me your money. Tithe. That didn't get nailed to the cross. But we know that the tithe is of the increase of your crops and animal life. So if you had 100 sheep and they bred this year and you now have 12 little lambs, well, then you need to give one or two of those lambs to the church. And you are to give the increase of your crops. If you grew 12, 10 cabbages last year and you grew 15 this year, well, then you owe two cabbages to the church. But the tithe is of the increase of your lambs and of your and so on and so forth. Now, this is completely overthrown by the gospel teaching of Mashiach, who says your giving is to be as the spirit directs, as the Ruach directs. And Yah loves a generous giver. But it has absolutely nothing to do with the tithe. Nothing. And the tithe was being given a tax upon what you did to support the Levitical priesthood. So my question to the pastor that's demanding the tithe is, number one, are you a Levite? And invariably, in the Christian church, they'll tell you, oh, no, I'm in, in the order of Melchizedek. I'm a priest by oath in the order of Melchizedek. I'm not a Levite. Well, then why are you demanding a Levite tithe if you're not a Levite? And furthermore, they're not asking for a tithe. They're asking for the Taruma. And the Taruma they're asking for is a voluntary offering, not a mandatory offering. So let's read. This is Exodus 25.1. And Yahweh spoke unto Moshe, saying, Speak unto the children of Yasharel that they may bring me an offering of every man that gives it willingly. Every man that gives it willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering. So we start with the idea that the Teruma is a willing, voluntary offering not a tithe that's mandated by contract. And this is the offering which you shall take of them, gold, silver, and brass, and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen, and goat's hair, and ram skins, dyed red, and antelope skins, and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And do what with this offering? This offering is being taken for a purpose. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. Okay, now, this is different than the temple, which is going to be built for the name of Yahweh. The dwelling of Yahweh in this sanctuary, in this tabernacle, is going to be a spiritual dwelling, a cross-dimensional dwelling, that's going to take place 
using the Ark of the Covenant. According to all that I show you, after at the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. So now we're talking about a tabernacle. So you see in the first event that Yah is interested in his being resident in a tent, not a stone building. So there is a substantial difference here about what Yah is telling his people. And you can see that this had tremendous meaning to the people of Israel in the wilderness, right? Now, I'm not going to go through the whole building. I'm not going to go through the building of the Ark of the Covenant. But the first thing that happens is you talk about making an ark. And the ark is going to be made. It's going to be overlaid with gold on the outside and the inside. And it's going to have a lid of solid gold. Now, I've heard rabbis say, oh, well, it weighed about uh, 280 pounds. That's just nonsense. If you've ever picked up gold, you will know that gold is extremely heavy. And the, the Ark of the Covenant, if you built it actually according to spec, weighs about 3,500 pounds. That's about the weight of a car. And yet four Levites were able to carry that through the desert with two poles. How'd that happen? But we see that for those of you that don't know, that there were carabim on top of the Ark and their wings faced each other like this. You can look at Google Images and you can get a very clear idea about how the Ark of the Covenant was built and the mercy seat and how the wings faced each other. And the carabine shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. So a lot of guys build it like this with one wing up, one wing this way. You'll see it. Images like that. A lot of them have the wings facing like this. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark, and the ark you shall put in the testimony that I shall give you. So what's in the ark? The Ten Commandments, written on the sapphire stones. And I will meet with you, and I will commune with you from above the mercy seat, or between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony. All things which I will give in commandment unto the children of Yasharel. So, inside the ark of the covenant is... The covenant. The covenant of the ten Devarim. That what's inside the Ark of the Covenant? The covenant. On the exterior of the Ark of the Covenant is the Torah. Moshe's Torah. Inside the Ark are the Ten Commandments. The covenant. Okay? Now, from the Ark, we go to the building of the table. Okay? And the table has its specifics. You shall set upon the table showbread before me always. Then you shall make a menorah. Now, here's an instruction. This is an instruction from Yah. You're not building a graven image when you get a menorah. A menorah is not a graven image. A menorah is a menorah. The menorah is not to be worshipped. But the menorah is a fantastic teaching tool because it sets forth the sevenfold doctrine of his whole creation. Just in looking at the menorah, you can see it. If you understand the shamash is the center light and the three lights to the left and the three right lights to the right, 
It gives you a very clear ind indication of the seven rule quote that are expressed in Isaiah 11.2. It talks about the seven feasts that are given to you in Leviticus 23. It talks about the seven days of creation that's given to you in Genesis 1.1. The menorah sets forth the sevenfold doctrine, and a careful study of the menorah can be used as a teaching tool for that extent. And it gives you very specific instructions how to build a menorah. Then you shall make the tabernacle with curtains of linen. Curtains of linen. Why linen? Because they don't spark, right? You shall make curtains of goat's hair to be a covering upon the tabernacle. Why goat's hair? All of this stuff, when Nikola Tesla looked at this and other people looked at this, they realized that the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, was actually a capacitor. It was an electric capacitor. And so, you know, one of these things that we discovered, we discovered slowly but surely. We talked about it a little bit last night at the fellowship. First of all, the scripture, the book of scripture, begins with a book whose first four letters are, first five letters are genes. Genes. Genesis. Genes is. And its description in the Torah portion is called Taldad, the generations, the gene-rations. So ultimately, scripture is about genetics. We found something very interesting last night. Somebody wrote me today and they said, the book of Enoch is heretical because it says that Cain was of the seed of Satan. And I wrote him back and I said, well, actually, no. The book of Enoch is absolutely silent on that subject. Doesn't say a thing about it. But we can get this passage that says this, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brothers righteous. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one. Well, that's an interesting quote. Somebody saying that Cain was of the wicked one. Well, who said that? Where can that passage be found? Try 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. Okay. So at any rate, we see that with the goat's hair and, the, and this kind of skins that are over the top of the tabernacle, see, there's nothing there. The wood is over here around the sides, and then on top is nothing but skin. And skin does what? It creates this effect where Yah would visit inside the tabernacle in the form of a high-voltage expression. Okay, and then the, the use of shitting wood for building the side walls. And then, of course, you shall make a veil of blue, purple, and scarlet, uh, scarlet twined linen, twined linen. With caravim, it shall be made, and you shall hang it upon the four pillars overlaid with gold. Okay? 
Then you shall make an altar, also five cubit longs. And you shall make the cord of the tabernacle for the south side. There should be hangings of cord of fine twine linen. Now, there's been a lot of discussion on the tabernacle and its building and how it really uh, is very similar to the human body. It's very, very similar to the human body. And so when, when we're told that we are the temple, probably the better way to put it, and probably this would have been a better translation, we're not the temple. We're not, we're not some kind of a, a, a building. But rather, we are a tabernacle. We are the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is very, very close in its description to a human being. And so if you were to read in the Gospels, haven't you read, ye are the tabernacle where Yah would dwell, where Yah would dwell? And of course, the Holy of Holies is, is in the mind, right? In the mind and in the soul. Okay. Okay. And so anyway, we continue now. So this is all the instruction about building the temple or building the tabernacle. Now, when we get to the Haftarah, we get to this portion, and by the way, a lot of times when you read this in the Sefer, you're going to realize that Kings is a little bit out of joint because we moved the numbering of the verses in Kings in this section to comport with the Torah portion because the Tanakh numbers these chapters differently, all right? We had a woman write us, what have you done to First, to first Kings 5? I burnt my Sefer. You shouldn't have done that. We just renumbered it to comport with the Tanakh. All the verses are still there. It's just renumbered to comport with the Tanakh. Oh. And Yahweh gave Shalomah wisdom as he promised him, and it was peace between Hiram and Shalomah. And the two cut a covenant together. See what I'm talking about? So here Shalomah has been hitting this guy with hard dealing. And now, hey, let's work together. Okay, so now there's peace between them, and they cut a covenant. And King Shalomah raised a levy out of all Yasharel, and the levy was 30,000 men, and he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month by courses. A month they were in Lebanon, and two months at home. Sounds like working on the North Slope, right? And Adoniram was over the levy. And Shalomah had threescore and 10,000 that bore burdens, and fourscore thousand hewers in the mountains. So four score thousand, 60,000 guys are up digging out the stones. Now, so when you talk about all these legends that you hear in Egypt, oh, the, the, you know, the house of Israel is the one that built the pyramids and so forth. We know that the house of Israel are the ones that built the temple. And look at what he's got going here. Just to build his temple and his palace, 60,000 guys are out here hewing lime out of the mountains. Beside the chief of Shalomah's officers, which were over the work, 3,300, which ruled over the people and wrought in the work. And the king commanded, and they brought great stones, costly stones and huge stones, and laid the foundation of the house. And Shalomah's builders and Hiram's builders did hew them and the stone squares, so they prepared timber and stones to build the house. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Yasharel were come out of the land of Mitzrayim in the fourth year of Shalomah's reign over Yasharel in the month of Zeb. Okay, so this is some pretty specific timing. And it depends on who you believe as to when Moshe came out of Yasharel. Because here we're talking about that 
480th years, 480 years later, after Moshe came out of Egypt, all right, that were come out of the land of Mitzrayim. And we know they were 40 years in, in the wilderness, right? So we could say it's 440 years from the time they crossed the Jordan. That's going to put the Exodus at a little closer to around 1400 BC and not later, not 1492, like some people think, but around 1400, because uh, David's reign, Solomon's reign was right around 1000 BC, right around 1000 BC. Okay. And, okay, and... The length there, and the house which King Shalomah built for Yahweh, the length there was, was three score cubits. Those are Noah, Noahkeed cubits, not Ezekiel cubits. And the breadth, 20 cubits, and the height thereof, 30 cubits. So you're talking 60 feet, 70 feet. And the porch before the temple of the house, 20 cubits was the length thereof, according to the breadth of the house, and 10 cubits was the breadth thereof of the, before the house. And the house, he made windows of narrow light, so narrow windows. And against the wall of the house, he built chambers round about. Against the wall of the house, round about, both of the temple and of the oracle, he made chambers round about. The neithermost chamber was five cubits broad, and the middle was six cubits. Okay, so you're talking, you know, you're talking roughly 12 by 12. And the third was seven cubits broad. For without, in the wall of the house, he made narrow rests about it. And the beams should not be fastened in the walls of the house. And the house, when it was in building, was built of stone, made ready before it was brought thither, so that there was neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron heard in the house while it was in building. What we have is what we have. The door for the middle chamber was in the right side of the house, and they went up with up winding stairs in the middle chamber out of the middle into the third. So he built the house and finished it and covered the house with beams and boards of cedar. Then he built chambers against all the house, five cubits high, and they rested on the house with timber of cedar. And the word of Yahweh came to El Shalomah, saying, Concerning this house which you are in building, if you will walk in my statutes and execute my judgments and guard all my commandments to walk in them, then will I perform my word with you, which I spoke unto El David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Yasharel and not forsake my people. Now, look at this again. If you will walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, and guard my commandments to walk in them, then I will perform with you what I said unto David, and I will dwell among the children of Yasharel and not forsake my people. What's the contronym to that? If you do not walk in my statutes, if you do not execute my judgments, and if you do not guard all my commandments to walk on them, walk in them, then I will forsake you. It's pretty clear. You have an obligation. You're going you're to put my name in a temple. Well, then you have an obligation. And what did they do? They walked away. And they walked away as far as they could get. And when they did, that temple was destroyed. The Ark of the Covenant was removed, and Yah took his name from that place. Okay. Now, let's get into what we really need to talk about today, which is 
the Bessarab portion. That same day, Yahusha went out of the house and sat by the seaside. Now, this is going to be from Matthew 13. He went out of the house and sat by the seaside. Okay. What house? What seaside? Are we ever told that Yahusha has a house that's on the Mediterranean coast? Is he in Caesarea? Is he in Yafo? Is he in Ashkelon? Where is he that he went out of the house and sat by this, the seashore? Well, we kind of guess. We say, well, it must have been the Dead Sea. Or it must have been the, the Sea of Galilee, which they called the Kinneret, the heart, Lake Heart. Well, maybe. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him. Now, I can tell you, if you go to Israel right now, they'll tell you that this happened up in a place in the northern kingdom. The Catholic Church has got it all set up up there. But there's no house and there's no seaside where this took place. All right. And the great multitudes were gathered together unto him so that he went into a ship and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. So you know that in order for him to do this, had this had to be very quiet water, and it had to be a pretty narrow harbor where people could sit around, you know, and hear. And he spoke many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth. And forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched because they had no root. They withered away. And some fell among thorns and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But others fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who has ears, let him hear. All right, now let's stop there for a second. And keep in mind that oftentimes we hear when they talk about seed, we're talking about uh, the generations of human being. Okay, you're talking about the DNA of a person, right? The seed of the woman shall crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So, are we? Does the serpent have seed? Does the woman have seed? Well, yes, if you construe it as the birthing process, the generation, the gene seed, the genetic seed. So now if we look at this from a genetic point of view, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, right? And fowls came up and devoured them, okay? So these are children that are readily taken, right? Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and they sprung up quickly, but because they had no deepness of earth, when the sun was up, they were scorched because they had no root, and they withered away. So, again, you're talking about children born into a rootless idea. There is no root. There's no teaching of root. Okay? Okay. Uh, okay. 
Now, and then some, and then he's, and, and who has ears, but other fell onto good ground. He says, who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the Talmudim came and said unto him, why speak to you unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not given. Now, this is referring to you guys right here in this Shabbat fellowship. It is given unto you to know the mysteries of heaven, but not unto them. For whosoever has to him shall be given, and he shall have more in abundance. But whosoever has not from him shall be taken away even what little he has. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because they seeing see not and hearing hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Yeshayahu, which says, by hearing ye shall hear and not understand and seeing ye shall see and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have closed. Does this sound familiar to anybody? This is the condition that we have going on in the United States all over the place. People can't hear. They can't see. They can't rationalize. They can't think. They can't catch the forest for the trees. They can't see the most obvious things in front of them that anybody else could see readily. They can't see it at all because they have ears that hear but cannot understand and eyes that see but cannot perceive. Lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should turn back that I should heal them. He doesn't want them healed. Why doesn't he want them healed? Because they have no love for the truth. They don't want the truth. They want anything and everything but the truth. In fact, they're trying to criminalize the truth right now across the United States. Criminalize it. Oh, you're planning on speaking the truth? Then you're going to prison. We're going to criminalize the truth. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For amen, amen, I say unto you, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see at those things which at ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and understands it not, then comes the wicked one and catches away that which was sown in his heart. Well, I read that. I read that book, didn't understand a single word of it. Right? I read that Bible, didn't understand a single word of it. And what little aspect of faith that might have been grown, the little kernel of faith that might have been lit, is blown up. But he that received the seed in stony places, the same as he that hears the word and immediately with joy receives it. Oh, this is great stuff. 
yet he has not a root in himself, but endures only for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by, he is offended. Oh, that stuff. Yeah, I believe that stuff for a while. Then I got smart. Then I realized that stuff was just, a, you know, that's a crutch for weak people. I'm a strong person. That stuff's just a crutch. Boom. As soon as it gets a little bit tough, a lot of people love the gospel. I'm in a prosperity church. We preach that if we keep giving, we're going to get richer and richer and richer and richer. The pastor shows us the way. He's so stinking rich, he flies into church in the hills on his own helicopter. And we're financing his $70 million private jet right now. Wait till that's me. Of course, right now I don't have it because I've given all my money to him. But, uh, but soon, I'm going to have as much money as that guy. Prosperity. But then as soon as you finally realize, hey, all my money's gone, and we just got kicked out of our house, and we don't have any place to live, then what do you say? Enough of that scripture stuff. Been there, done that, not doing that again. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that hears the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches chokes the word and he becomes unfruitful. And I can tell you, I've seen this. I'm not going to mention any names, but a guy who's done very well on Bitcoin has now you know, brought his Ferrari home and is reveling in that and is shocked when he comes back to look at the word and sees, well, I've got my Ferrari, and yet tribulation is still, still appears to be at the doorstep. What now? It's going to be hard to drive the Ferrari on bombed-out roads, I'll tell you that. But he that received seed in the good ground is he that hears the word, understands it, which also bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty. Some 30. All right, good teaching. Another parable put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came in and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the seed of the serpent. Yah sowed his field with wheat. Then the enemy snuck in and sowed his seed in the same field. The triple helix. The seed of the fallen serpent. And those tares sprung up in the same field. Well, now what? Right? Well, when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the terrace also. So the servants of the house came and said to him, Adonai, didn't you sow good seed in your field? From whence then has it tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. And the servant said unto him, will you that we go and gather them up? And he said, nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up the wheat also with them. Now, listen to this very carefully, all those who believe in the, in the pre-tribulation rapture. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, 
gather ye together first the tares, bind them in bundles, and burn them. But gather the wheat unto my barn. <laughs> Who's first to go? Tares. This is also talked about in 4th Ezra, by the way. Who's first to go? Dr. P, does cross-pollinization come up? Can you turn your mic up there, Alicia? I can hardly hear you. All right, I had it up on my head. Cross-pollinization comes to mind when you read that. Isn't that something that Yah talked about um, with the seed? Do you remember? Yeah. I mean. So, so when he planted the wheat and the tares, or when the tares were planted, they cross-pollinated, so to speak, in some cases. Now, that I don't know. That I don't know, but I mean, well, it's 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 metaphorical. It's it's meaning he 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 put them in that same field, Asatan, and some made it or whatever, right? I mean, we know. Yeah. It, okay, <laughs> I'm just yeah. talking out loud, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, well, you know, I mean, this. I think this parable is definitely talking about genetics. We see it spiritually as well, but it's also talking about genetics. It's talking about there is a different seed among mankind. We have the seed, we have the wheat, but there is a different seed because the enemy came in and sowed his seed in that field. There's a different seed. And, you know, and part of the reason that that happened, I believe, is because at all times, the love of Yah is a willing election, just like the Taruma is a willing offering. The love of Yah is a willing election. Yah isn't going to force anyone to love him. He gives you every opportunity in the world and all the instruction in the world, but you can lead a horse to water. You can't make him drink. Ultimately, you and anyone else that you know on this earth, including your children, have to make the election themselves. Just the way it is. Okay. Another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Now, this is, I think, a wonderful, absolutely wonderful uh, parable. Because, you know, Yah lifts up the smallest of people. The people that, gee, nobody's got any use for that person. That person came from this. That person was that. That person was the other thing. That person, uh, you know, came out of the slums and is a nobody, is commoner of the lowest level. And, uh, you know, has had nothing but problems and is, you know, uh, set back as far as you can get. And then that is the person that Yah lifts up to talk before kings. It's that person. It's not the person who, you know, oh, this is the son of the, you know, five popes in a row. And this person, we're going to put a, a glorious hat on him and ship him around. Yah won't lift that person up at all. He lifts up the mustard seed. 
He lifts up the mustard seed and says, this one is going to be the one where people will plant and where, where birds will lodge in the branches thereof, right? All right. The king, another parable he's spoken to them and said, the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal. So she took the leaven that she had, which was enough for one loaf of bread, split it up three ways and put it into three different loaves. And guess what? The whole of them were leavened. And what Yah is not comparing the kingdom of heaven to sin, like we see the, uh, the allegory made between leaven and you know getting the leaven out of your house for matzah, but rather a leavening agent that you can divide it three ways and it's still going to produce full loaves of bread. You can divide it and divide it and divide it and it's still going to produce, it's still going to fully leaven what it is that is there. All these things spoke Yahusha unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spoke he not unto them that it might be fulfilled at that which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Now, did you hear this? This is not a minor statement. I open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Now, I can remember reading the Gospels, you know, when I was a New Testament guy only. You know, you're reading the Gospels, you're all the time you're in the New Testament, and you're reading, you're going, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, mm -hmm, yeah, I get that, I get that. But you know what? I didn't get it. I'm looking at these things going, what is he talking about? The secret that's been kept from the foundation of the world. What is he talking about? What's Paul talking about? I'm not following that either. What are these guys talking about? And finally, when I began to browse through the Old Testament, and I went through the Old Testament for many, many years until I felt satisfied that I had a handle on the Old Testament enough to be able to go back and read the New Testament. Because as they say, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And they're dependent upon one another. You can't just walk around saying, oh, I'm only a New Testament church. Well, then you're a fool. You need to read the entirety of the text to get an idea about what's being said and why it's being said. And so here Mashiach is going to utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Well, what were these things? Well, the resurrection. That's one. The promise that the blood of Mashiach would be the blood that would be the atonement for the soul, Leviticus 17.11. The fulfillment of the, of the restoration of the whole Adamic race in the life of Mashiach, which could only happen in him. The fact that creation was by him, through him, for him, as revealed in John 1.1. 1, 1. These kinds of things, and that death would be would be finally conquered entirely. And the fact that there would be a resurrection of the dead, the fact that there would be eternal life, that all these things that were kept secret from the foundation of the world, they didn't know, but Mashiach uttered them. And he said, let me to tell you these things. And when he expressed these things, you can just imagine the people standing there going, what? You know, the gawking had to be unbelievable. What did you say again? Oh, yeah. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. I mean, think about it. The resurrection and the ascension 
and life eternal and, you know, all of these things, and that the Father was made manifest in the flesh on the earth. All of these things are like, what are you talking about? These things are so extreme, much more extreme than a talking donkey. <laughs> hey, Doc. Dr. Yeah, Mark. Hallelujah. It's awesome. Um, what Do you know what prophet they're quoting right there that he's quoting? I think it's, uh, I think it's Isaiah. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, kept secret from the foundation of the world. I mean, it's amazing stuff, really. And the teaching in the New Testament is really over the top. I mean, it's over the top. I mean, the stuff is, um, if you really explore the teaching in the New Testament, where you really get into it and understand it, from a Hebrew point of view, it will blow your mind what's there. It absolutely blow your mind. I don't even teach it anymore because I won't teach it. Because if I started unveiling all the mysteries in the New Testament, then I have people that want to burn me at the stake. So I don't do that anymore. I just don't teach what's in the, the, in the entirety of the New Testament. You're going to have to find out for yourself. But in the meantime, we will explore what's in the Gospels here and see what's said, right? Then Yahshua sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his Talmudim came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said unto them, He that sows the good seed is the son of Adam. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. Now, you know, when you first start out, you know, you, when you're in a typical Christian church, you're going, oh, okay, you have to opt into one of those to be either wicked or be the children of the kingdom. Nope. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. I mean, that's pretty explicit. And the harvest is the end of the world. And the reapers are the angels. Not you. The reapers are the angels. Therefore, the tares are gathered and burned in the fire. So shall it be at the end of the world. The son of Adam shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do transgress the Torah. What? This is in the gospel? This is Mashiach talking? Right? We're going to gather out of the kingdom all things that offend, and all of those that transgress the Torah. Oh, uh, wait a minute. My pastor told me that all that stuff was nailed to the cross. I confronted a pastor outright in Portland, Oregon. I said, just exactly how much do you believe was nailed to the cross? Brother Stephen. Yes, I hi. Interrupt. I just found the quotation that was asked. It is uh, Telim Psalms. 78 verse 2. Mark, what's that? Which, which, uh, which book again? Uh, the Psalms. Tehillim. Oh, Psalms. Uh, so yes. it's a quote from David. 78 verse 2. 78 verse 2. Yes. Hallelujah. Yeah, thank you, Ipa. You're welcome. That. Nope, that answers your question, Mark. 78 verse 2. Psalm 78 verse 2. Okay, so... Here you see Mashiach is telling you the son of Adam is going to gather out of his kingdom all of those that transgress the Torah. You're out. 
and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. Where there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Well, I hate to break the news to everybody, but that's in everybody's gospel. Did your pastor read this passage to you? Ever? Did they ever teach this in the church where they were just ramping you up on the tithe all the time? Did they ever teach this? What does it mean by transgressing the Torah? Well, at a bare minimum, you have the Ten Commandments. Because this was the handwritten Torah of Yah. He wrote it with his own fingertip. And Deuteronomy 5.22 says he added nothing further. He wrote these on the sapphire stones with his own fingertip and added nothing further. Well, what's those commandments? Well, one of them is, thou shalt guard my Shabbat. And Rome comes to you and says, if you dare to guard that Shabbat, we're going to burn you at the stake. We're going to take you into this little prison hall here. We're going to put you in an iron maiden. We're going to put ropes and tie your hands behind your back and dangle you from the ceiling by that rope. If you dare to keep that Shabbat, we're going to kick you out of your country, take your property, steal all your money, and kill your kids on the way out. Now the government tells you, you shall not have Yahweh as your Elohim. You shall worship our gods. Libertas, Easter, engraven images, democracy. We've got a whole pantheon of gods you're going to worship, and you keep shooting your mouth off about Yah, and we're going to put you in a prison. We're going to put you in a camp, FEMA camp. We got something in store for you. Or take your children off you and call you a child abuser. There you go. Whatever it takes to persecute and smash down the believer. But what does Yah say? That those who transgress the Torah, this is, look, this isn't Paul speaking. This isn't James, this isn't Jude, this isn't Peter, this isn't the scribes and Pharisees, this is Yahusha saying to you, they shall gather out of the son of Adam. Who's he talking about? Who's the Ben Adam? This is Mashiach on the throne. Who's the Ben Adam? Son of the blood. It's Mashiach on the throne. And what does he say? The son of Adam shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which transgress the Torah. 
and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who has ears to hear, hear it. Okay, all you pastors that have been teaching that everything's nailed to the cross. This is what we call the gospel truth. Why? Because it's out of the gospel, and it's the truth, because Mashiach is the way, the truth, and the life. But I'm going to tell it, to, tell it to them in a parable so that they have ears that hear will not understand, and those that have eyes that can see will not perceive. I'll give it to in a parable so that they don't get it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hidden in a field, which when a man has found it, he hides it for joy and, there, and goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You know, when you find out there's a piece of property where they're going to build an interstate freeway, you know, you can pick up the acreage for 10 bucks. You sell everything you have to go get that acreage. And the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. So when he had found one pearl of great price, you know, the one that's perfectly shaped, the big one, sold all the other stuff and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind. This is a very important parable. Which when it was full, they drew it to shore. Now, any of you who have done any fishing, you know, you get a lot of stuff in that net that you don't, you're not going to eat it. You're not going to keep it. Hey, so when Dr. You gather, King? Yeah, go ahead. Can I ask you a question? You can ask one. Then you're cut off for the rest of the, of the Shabbat meeting. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you said before, son of Adam, and some people asking in the chat, who is the son of Adam? Well, we know it's Ben Adam. That's right. Beit, Beit Nun. Aleph, Dalet, Mem. Inside the seed of the mighty blood. Yeah, yeah, shakalaka. Yeah. yeah, very good. Okay, now, when we talk about this, when we talk That's about... That's what I, I, I'm asking a question of. Sorry if you can hear my budgies in the background because they speak over me. They're quite rude. That's me. But go ahead no, and no. ask your question. <laughs> No, my budgies in the background. Can you hear them? I Go ahead. No, I don't. Go ahead, but ask your I, question. I got two budgies in the background. They're called Hezekiah and Jeremiah, and they're quite rude. Oh, they got well, me quiet Amy, now because I said their name. You've got to ask your question. Yeah, my question was, who is the son of Adam? Ben, son, Adam. Okay, now let me answer the question. Okay. Hallelujah. Okay. So we see in, in scripture, we see a couple of things. And, I, and while we're here, I want to share this passage with you again out of 1 John. Because one of the things we know is that when we deal with, uh, when we deal with, um, hold on just a minute. We've got some other stuff coming in here. I got it. When we deal with, um, there's kind of two classes, if you will. There's a very good statement that was made by a Muslim guy. 
And he was talking about um, what is the key distinction with Mashiach? The key distinction with Mashiach is that he is both the Ben Elohim and the Ben Adam. He's both Ben Elohim and the Ben Adam. Hallelujah. Now, we know in we know in uh, Genesis 6, 4, we see for the first time a discussion of the Beni Elohim. And the Beni Elohim of uh, this phrase is found only three times in the Old Testament. One is it, Genesis 6, 4, and then you have Job 1, 6 and Job 2, 1, talking about the Beni Elohim. And the Bani Elohim are, okay, this is an interesting and curious thing, because we think, at least I'm beginning to think, that the Bani Elohim were people who had an existence that was pre-Adam. And that you see a, an epic described in Genesis 1 that is a 7,000-year epic before the creation of Adam that takes place in Genesis 2. And we know that there was something in existence because with Cain, you have this issue of after Cain kills his brother Abel, he is going to be cast out of the garden. And he looks at Yah and says, anyone who finds me will kill me. Well, if you accept that only Adam and Hua were on earth at the time, is he going to be killed by Adam, by his mother and father? No. There's The reason there was a mark put on him is because there were other beings that were going to kill him the Beni Elohim, the sons of Elohim. Now, you can kind of see this in Genesis 1, where it says, let us create man in our image and our likeness. And they, he created him, male and female, Zakar Nechabah, in his image. But when you get to Adam and Hua, you're talking about Ish and Isha, not Zakar and Nechabah, but Ish and Isha beings of light. Okay, so who are these children that are created in Genesis 1? Well, they're the children of Elohim. Elohim said, let us make them in our image and our likeness. So there would be known as the Beni Elohim, the sons of Elohim. Now, these sons of Elohim are the ones who transgress with human women. We have been always taught that these are fallen angels. But the word that you hear in Daniel talking about using the term watcher, which, by the way, is the only place that we find this word watcher, is in Daniel. And this is the Aramaic word ir, which in Hebrew is actually ur, ur. And ur means watcher at some level, but really means ancient master, ancient master. And so when you talk about the fallen watchers, imagine if that translation read the fallen ancient masters. So now we begin to see something entirely different taking place with the Beni Elohim and what they did. Now, when you read in Job 1.6 or Job 2.1, the Beni Elohim appeared before Yah in heaven. And with them was Satan. Dr. So, P, would this refer to Psalm 82 as well? Sorry to interject. 
maybe, but I have to ask Amy, please don't interject, okay, uh, anymore, because there's people in front of you waiting to ask questions. And so we want to okay. want to follow a close protocol here, okay? Okay. Okay. Sorry, and sorry. I want, I'll, I'll, get this, I'll get this all made to you. That's okay. So when we look at when we look at what, what's happening here, you see that the Beni Elohim and Hasatan are going back and forth, to and fro, and back and forth on the earth. That's what the passage says. And it says it both in, in Job 1.6 and in Job 2.1. So these Bini Elohim are some form of people that are capable of moving both in and out of heaven. They're in and out of heaven. And when you talk about Nafal, Nafal talks about the think of you know the Nafal, the fall part of Nafal is fall. There are they are the fallen ones. And the Nephil, on the other hand, are the children of the Nafal. This is Numbers 1333. Nafalim, which only appears twice in scripture, as compared to Nephilim. Nafalim, the fallen ones. So the Bini Elohim are an interesting class of people. And one of the things we talked about last night that I think is kind of interesting, because in the book of Hanok, it says these Bini Elohim will live for 500 years. Now, this is something that Lisa Marie brought up on Thursday night, that uh, these Beni Elohim that may be on the earth today live a lot longer than human beings. And so they disguise their death and they disguise their age. I mean, I'm going to ask you guys a question and see if anybody remembers with me. Wasn't Henry Kissinger in his 50s during the Nixon administration? I mean, if he was, that puts him at 120-something years old now, right? George Soros was like 20 years old in 1940. What's that make him? You know, I mean, so when you, when you're, when you look at these things, you know, is this a possibility? Maybe. But when we talk about Beni Elohim and Beni Adam, now, if we had, if we, assuming that we had something in Hebrew in 1 John, we see this. 1 John chapter 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the Beni Elohim, the sons of Elohim. Therefore, the world knows us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now we are the sons of Elohim. We are Beni Elohim. Well, what's he talking about? Well, the non-fallen versus the fallen, right? So when you talk about Beni Elohim, Nafal, the fallen sons of Elohim, versus the Beni Elohim risen, this is the difference between the two. So here's Mashiach saying, I am Beni Elohim and Beni Adam. I am the son of Adam and the son of Elohim. These things are both true. Now, we understand when you go to in the Christian church, they tell you, well, he was fully God and fully man. But it's more than that, you see. Beni Adam and Beni Elohim, it's more than that. It's more than that. And so when we're talking about this parable here, 
He says, and the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea, gathered of every kind. When it was full, they drew it to shore and sat down and gathered the good into the vessels, but cast the fallen, the seed of the fallen away, the seed of the tares away. And he's telling us very specifically that the tares were sown by the devil, by Hasatan. He's telling us very, it's, it's very clear what he's saying. And so we see some, this is part of the reason why I wanted to, I know the Torah portion, well, the Torah portion is a good Torah portion. I'm not trying to diminish the Torah portion, but uh, it was very important for us to see that we go, and part of the reason this Besserah portion is here is because we go from the idea of here's the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, to here's the temple, to here is the true kingdom of heaven. Here's the true kingdom, and the kingdom of heaven is something different than a tabernacle and something different than a tent and something different than a stone building. It's something completely different, you see? And ultimately, in this teaching, in this teaching, on the, uh, in this teaching we see Mashiach saying, those who have gutted the Torah will not be kept in the kingdom of heaven. Okay. All right. So with that, I want to go to I'm going to I want to go to a Mary Irving. She's been waiting to speak. Mary. Hi, Dr. P. I got it. I just I got in. Hold on. You got to turn your volume down because you're getting an echo there. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah. OK, I'm so sorry. I got a new screen that makes it bigger. Um, I um, found some incredible things and I wanted to ask you about it. It deals with the Torah portion. When Mashiach was in the temple, the coins that they were using in the temple had um, Janus on it. And Janus, in the Roman terms, was equal to Yah. And the counterpart was um, Iana. And um, she is dealt with stones and arches. So when the um, Israelites were leaving, the chariots were coming after him and they didn't capture him. They were found a way out and they were in the wilderness. And so to me, that was like God's kingdom, right? In the wilderness, it was, he was um, administering his kingdom. And then they did make the um, accoutrements to the kingdom, like the candle stand and all that out of the gold that was given to them when they left Egypt. And so um, when the temple was taken down, and then I saw that um, about Herod's temple, I felt like it was just a replica of Herod's temple. And I'm really nervous, Dr. P, so you have to tell me if I'm not making sense. <laughs> so anyway, um, when they exited, when the temple was um, taken down in, um, Jerusalem, they are, they put up an ark in Rome and it's called the Ark of um, Triumph. And in the Ark of Triumph, they have all these um, uh, carvings on it. And the fascist is there. They have all the temple instruments. I can tell you what it says here. It says um, the, um, it's a decorative sculpture 
and they have the, um, on the north side, it's called the Ark of Titus. And so right. on, the, on the north side, they have, um, oh, I'm really nervous now, I'm reading the history. Anyway, they have, on one side, they have um, the, um, it's called the, um, I gotta stop shaking. Okay, I just gotta take a breath. Okay, now Mary, Mary, Mary. Okay, let the peace of Yah <laughs> have at you. There's absolutely nothing to be worried about. You're doing okay. just fine. You're, so, you're, among, you're, you're quietly among friends. And <laughs> as soon as you're done speaking, we're gonna save the recording and broadcast it into 165 <laughs> nations. <laughs> Yeah, just oh, no, don't, now I might have a, a breathing problem. <laughs> so no, I'm, have, teasing, I'm teasing you, Mary. So when you so, so you're talking about the Titus Arch in Rome, right? Yeah. And so they on there they have the um Ara Pasis Auguste, and that was the altar that they um called peace, where they would sacrifice all of their um sacrifices to their gods but it also states that what they're what it was doing was separating man from god and they have the the they also have the feces on there you know the um and then they have all the temporal instruments that they took going back into rome they don't have yeah. the ark of the covenant because this is the ark of the triumph yeah, and the Ark of the Covenant was gone. Now, let me just say something about this here, too, because it's important. When you talk about the, um, when you talk about Rome, Rome's key to fame and Rome's key to success in their mind was diversity, right? They used to have these little coexist bumper stickers that they put on the back of the chariot. And it would have, you know, the picture of Janus and Jupiter and Apollo and Athena, you know and uh, uh, Dionysus, and then uh, Mithras, and then Nimrod, and, you know, Ianana, and on and on and on. And it all spelled out coexist in, in the Latin language. And you can see that same Latin ideology is taught in America. That's what the coexist bumper sticker is all about. That's what the First Amendment is about. Yeah. Congress shall make no law respecting any establishment of religion. Because no longer would you be a theocracy that's predicated on the same beliefs that founded your 12 colonies. Now we're going to allow any competing ideology in the door and we're going to protect it legally. Any competing ideology, including secular humanism, atheism, Marxism, on and on and on and on. And so all the isms came in the door. Now, you had the same thing going on in Rome, and this was the approach of Constantine. Constantine said, well, look, here's what we'll do. Since we have this new religion out here that's kind of pushing at the door, and this religion was what? A religion that was given to us by the disciples where the foundation had been laid in the British Isles and had been in place there now for almost 300 years. When Constantine comes in and says, well, we need, we need to, you know, we need to wrestle this thing around and we need to incorporate it into our diversity that is Rome. Diversity that allows us to worship Saturn and to worship Jupiter and to worship this and worship Mars and to worship blah, 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 blah. Let's add this stuff into it. 
So what they did was they put that into the pot, into the big melting pot, and stirred it around. Well, what are we going to call this new thing that you've stirred around here, Constantine? Well, we'll name it after my symbol. Okay, hold it. We've arrived at that point. Share screen. Whiteboard. All right. So what was Constantine's symbol? One might wonder. Well, it was what was called. This is the Greek letter Rho. And this is the Greek letter Chi. This was the symbol that Constantine fought under. It's called the Cairo. Cairo. And so if this would stand for K-R. And he used this word like this. Krestos, which meant good. And they said, well, look, that's good, but it's not good enough. If you change this over to Christos, now we go from good all the way to anointed. Oh, okay. So we don't have to be anymore the Christians. Christians, which were the troops of Constantine, meaning the good, but now we can be Christians. And so this faith of Constantine was built on the key row, right here, the key row, and they called it the Christian faith, which meant anointed. But in the Christian faith, in the Christian faith, what Constantine wanted to do was he wanted to blend in Sun worship. Okay, so the sun worship, this was Mithras. And he wanted to blend in moon worship. Yeah. This was big part yeah. of it. And they wanted to put in sea worship, which was Neptune, sea worship, which was expressed in Dagon, right? And so it went. And so we ended up with, and then fertility, of course, had to be added, fertility, yep. rights of fertility. And all of this became known as 
Roman Catholicism. Oh, and I left out one important uh, thing that we left out here that's not mentioned in here, which is the serpent. Yeah. And in this case, the, the serpent was Absclepius. All of this was blended, all of this was blended into a single faith under the Kiwo. And into democracies and into governments all around the world. Exactly. And democracy, <laughs> when we talk about democracy, when you're talking about democracy, democracy is... Democracy equals coexist. Democracy means multiple Elohim. The spirit of the Antichrist. Yeah. So this is what you're seeing with democracy. You're seeing what I was going to tell you about is that these arches continued all around the world so the arc of triumph from um, napoleon they are in spain they are in korea they're all around the world so i was wondering like if it's the triumph they're triumphing they're displaying their triumph over god's kingdom you know and it's the four horses it's the taking of the um, the instruments of the temple because um, the gift that Mashiach gave us um, that we are the temple like you're saying and then I was wondering if the four horses if that's where the four horsemen came in because there's four horses on there the chariot on the very first one and the last one to be built was built in New York City and they actually built two of them Right. There are two of those arches in New York City. That's correct. I haven't yeah. gone to see what's all on them and everything, but for me, it was like, um, you know, depart from the world into all of the gifts that we have in the kingdom of Mashiach. Well, Mary, I'll tell you, it has been an overwhelming dominance by Rome for the last 2,000 years. An overwhelming dominance. and. You know, that this constant push to conquer, 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 conquer. And, and tied all the fascists, which tides like, don't go back to the elements of Egypt and the four elemental spirits that I believe that Paul's talking about in Galatians. And those are separating them out. You know, those things they worship, those things that we're doing, their offering and all that, not God's offerings. Yeah. And hey, Doctor P. I'm sorry to interrupt, but could you finish what you were saying before? Because I was I was writing it down. Forgive me oh, for sorry. interrupting. No, 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 Sister Mary. I just wanted him to finish because he was like kind of doing something, and it's not your fault. I was I just wanted him to finish what he was saying. Well, sorry, Doctor P. 
What I'm trying to say to you is that when you look at Rome's dominance, is that when you have to go back and look at this very clearly, because one thing I left out of the chart that I just had up on the whiteboard. Can we go back to that, Dr. P? Because I was actually writing that down and I've got half a page. Well, I think that I erased it, but let me look. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be. That's all right, but I want to show you this because when we look at this. Yeah, I know. I, know. I just wanted to see if it could give me. I wasn't. That, one of the things that came out of Rome, and it's the most important thing that came out of Constantine, was abolition. of the true Sabbath. Yep. Now I can tell you that Rome- And separating right on that arch, it's separating us from our gods. Their whole thing was separating from gods. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and it's an arc of triumph over what? It's an arc of triumph over the truth of the scripture. Now- when Yeah, or the true arc of covenants, the true arc. The true arc of the covenant. Now, and again- when we talk about this, remember that we talk about this idea of the menorah that's given to us in the Torah portion today, okay? Now, one of the things about that Titus arch is they're carrying away the, the temple menorah in triumph, yeah. right? And all of the things that they made in Egypt, yeah. but not the Ark of the Covenant. Well, again, the, the key issue here is this. With Yah, the character of Yah is sevenfold. You can see this in Genesis 1. Six days he created, and the seventh day he rested. But to Yah, one day is a thousand years. So when I think of it, there's, you know, the, the book of Peter makes it pretty clear that there's three earth ages. And I think those three earth ages are each 7,000 years. We're in the seven, seven, excuse me, the second epic right now. And we're nearing its climax. We're about to go into the 1,000 years of rest. And there'll be a third epic after this. And in each of these cases, we see that there is destruction that comes and a complete cleansing as, as it puts in, in Second Peter and in the book of Revelation, a new heaven and a new earth. It's the, same, it's the same thing that we see with the New Testament or New Covenant. It's not the word new, but the Hebrew word chadash, which does not mean new, chadash, but rather renew. So it's a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. And so when you take away the Shabbat, you take away the essential nature of Yah. Yeah, our community. Hold on just a minute. The essential nature of Yah is sevenfold.
So if you're taken away, if if your Sabbath is taken away, your seventh day rest is taken away, you're going to lose and you're going to miss out on the very character and nature of Yah. And you're going to be given over into something else. Now, when we talk about being given over to something else, let me just share with you what we've been given over to. So in the world, you have, you know, Genesis 1.14 tells us we are to use the, the sun, the moon, and the stars for signs, seasons, days, and years. But what we get with Rome is we get an arbitrary fixing of a date called New Year's. And then we get an algorithm called the calendar. The calendar is something that you cannot know. Why do people have calendars in their house? Why do you have a calendar on your phone? Because you can't know the day unless you have a calendar because it's arbitrary and capricious and it's an algorithm. Yah didn't give us that. Yah gave us a very clear solar lunar calendar that if you understand it, you can see it. And if you took the time to study the constellations in the heavens, which is told to us in the book of Job, and it's also told to us elsewhere, in, even in the book of Romans, that if we take the time to study these things, guess what? You can learn the, the hour of the day and the hour of the night by looking at the stars in the heavens. Just by looking at where they are, where the placement of the constellation is, you can tell what time it is. You can also tell what day of the month it is by knowing the moon cycle. You can also tell what month of the year it is by knowing the sun cycle. If you knew these cycles and studied these cycles as the ancient priesthood used to do, which is why they were able to navigate around the world with no compasses, because they used the stars, the sun, and the moon to determine all these things, which is why they were able to do successful agricultural practices, then you would know that it comes from the sevenfold doctrine of his whole creation and his character. But Rome taking that away from you and instead forcing upon you diverse gods. Very important. The first commandment says, I am Yahweh Elohenu. There shall be no other one before me. And Rome says, shut your face. There's Ishtar. You know, all you people who are in the Christian church, Better get your eggs ready for dying because here comes Easter. You yeah, remember that? And they're, and they're the only ones. They are the only ones with the right because they're gods to go yep. in between. They want to separate all of our ability to have relationship with Yah. Mm -hmm. And instead you have relationship with Vicarious Filio Dei, the one who is in place of God on earth who has said, all paths lead to heaven, who is now approved to pedophilia. What, you know what he said last week? Pedophiles have a special place in heaven. Oh. 
Rome. Dr. And you wonder, you wonder why the world is in the condition it's in. I wanted to share this with my brothers and sisters that are struggling with the missing of their family and all of that. And I wanted to just tell them that the goal of the systems that we're in around every part of the world is to separate us with our fellowship with Yah. And I can remember when um, I was first married and we weren't going to church. I was like, I'm not supposed to forsake the assembly of my brothers. I was scared. But when I realized in the Torah that we are celebrating with Yah today and that we are in fellowship with him in the most incredible way that we can possibly be in and that he, it's each one of our roles to um, sovereignly work out our love and our relationship with him. And um, I just want to encourage him in the struggle that in the end, don't look back. It's not, he even said he's going to put enmity, dispersion in your own families because he's a jealous God and he wants us more and more and more of us. So I just wanted to encourage him to um, lean into that love and lean into that relationship more and more and more. Yeah, I mean, that's a good word, Mary. I mean, we learn, you know, uh, we learn the love of Yah. And this is the love of Yah, you know, keeping his commandments. We're called to love Yah and to spend our time with him. And that's what we try to do here on Shabbat. So thank you for that word, Mary. And don't be nervous anymore. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Pete. I just wanted to thank everybody in this fellowship and all the love that they bring. Shabbat shalom to you. Shabbat shalom. Karen, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you, Dr. P. Um, from the speaking of the wheat and the tares, um, Matthew 13, from verse 39 till 41. Uh, I won't read the whole thing. I think we all know it. Um, I have kind of a double question. So when it says the harvest is the end of the world when the reapers come. It is that possibly not just one day, like the end of the world is one day and it's over. Could it possibly be we're in that day? It's just started now and we might be seeing these things and it's gonna just keep concluding. So in other you know, words, I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. You know, and I think, I mean, when we talk about the harvest, 